we're in a uh, series on Philippians. We've looked at the establishment of the Philippian church from the book of Acts and how it started as a small group, if you will, a small prayer group. And today, um, I actually want to begin reading in chapter 3. So if you have your Bible and want to turn there with me to Philippians chapter 3, I'll begin reading and I'll read the first oh, 12 or 15 verses or so. Uh, Paul says this, finally, now let me just say, there's another finally in another chapter or so. That doesn't mean, okay, this is the very last thing I'm going to say. That means sort of a moreover, or therefore, almost. So Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Verse 2, beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation or the mutilators of the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, who rejoice only in Christ Jesus and have put no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul's doing a little sort of tongue-in-cheek boast here about himself and confidence in the flesh. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning righteousness, which comes from keeping the law and performing the law, I was blameless, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them now as mere rubbish. The King James says, dung that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but having a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, so that I may know only him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed even to his very death. Skip down to verse 12 here. Not that I have already attained any of this or am already perfected, but this I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, that's brothers and sisters, I do not count myself to have apprehended this, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you enable us to accurately understand your word? Would you give us revelation into it? Would you cause us personally not only to understand it, but to be transformed by it? For I ask these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen.
Well, as you have heard this chapter and as I've just read it, Paul is really pointing out the church's primary opposition. And as he begins to point out the church's opposition, this fledgling church that was started as a small prayer group in the the city of Philippi, he's pointing out to them now that they have a major opposition. And as he does so, I want to underscore, well, there are a number of themes, but I'll just underscore today four themes that come out of this text for us. As we are in some ways a fledgling church ourselves, uh, we can have some of the same oppositions that Paul's pointing out uh, here. So he gives four admonitions. In the first one, let's see if we can put it up there, and the theme is no confidence in the flesh. That's a major issue. But the first thing is that Paul says, beware of what is false. All forms of self-righteousness, in fact, are false. Now, in verse 2, he says, beware of the dogs. This this is a different word than the house dogs that eat the scraps that fall from the table. These are the wild dogs that live out in the towns, and they were ferocious, and they attacked people. Now, notice the wording that he's using here. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of the mutilators of the flesh. Now, what's he talking about there? He's He's actually talking about this class of people, and I'm going to try to unpack who these people were, called Judaizers. Now, we've all heard that word. These were people who were keeping the law and who were keeping all of the rights of the law, but they were more than that. They were bands of Jewish zealots, often Pharisees. They would follow around the apostles and the church planters of that day And they would argue and convince new believers that they must be circumcised according to the law and actually perform all of the law of Moses in order to be saved. How would you like that? It isn't enough to believe in Jesus. They could swallow that one, okay, okay, Jesus, but you got to be circumcised and you got to keep all of the law of Moses in order to be saved. That was the major error that was going on. They were radical keepers of the rules. This group of people called Judaizers were meticulous performers of all of the rites. Uh, They were persecutors of everything that did not not, uh, conform to their own understanding. So they kept the rules, they kept the rites, and they were persecutors of everything that was different from their way of understanding how one is made righteous. You know, there's only one way to be made righteous, and that has nothing to do with your performance. Anybody glad about that? It has to do with faith in the man Christ Jesus, whom God has raised from the dead. And when you put your faith in him, he takes the righteousness of Christ and puts it on the likes of you. That's a wonderful thing. And he takes all of your failure off of you and puts it on all of Jesus. And it's in that equation that a person is saved, not by keeping the law, not by circumcision, not by any of those things. The the Judaizers were radical, and I'm going to use my words very carefully here, but they were radical, hate-filled, 
legalist bent on destroying the early church. Not only were they bent on destroying the early church, they caused great confusion and concern within the early church. That's why Paul's language is so harsh here. Does it ever, wow, look at, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. What's he talking about? He's talking about the people that say you have to be circumcised physically in order to be saved. You have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. You have to do all of these rules and rites and religion, if you will, in order to be saved. But see, Paul used these words that I think are fairly um, inflammatory. I read them and go, dogs and evil workers and mutilators of the flesh. Now, why do you think Paul used those words? Now, remember, we're talking about what is false, which is self-righteousness. Paul utilized those words because he knew, he knew one because he was one. He understood the Judaizers because he was a Judaizer. We don't usually hear this about the great apostle Paul, but see, Paul had a past. Paul was previously called Saul of Tarsus. Now, I'm going to tell you a little biblical story about this man named Saul and how he came to be this apostle that we know as Paul, the one whom God used to pen by the inspiration of the Spirit most of the New Testament. Well, the first time we, we need to predate Saul's being mentioned in the book of Acts. Um, in Acts chapter 5, or Acts chapter 6, as the church was growing, uh, they had need of, there were some, some um, Hellenistic uh, women that were being overlooked in the distribution of food. Evidently, they had sort of a, a care ministry, and they were providing food for different groups of people, and the Hellenistic uh, women were being overlooked by the distribution of food. So Paul says, then the, the apostles, that, that is, said, let's choose seven people full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit, and we'll give them the task of waiting on tables, and we, the apostles, will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. It sounded like a good deal. Well, one of those early servers, we call them deacons, but the early servers was actually by the, had the name of Stephen. Now, Stephen was full of wisdom and filled with the Holy Spirit, and Stephen began to share his faith rather openly, and through his hands, God began to touch people and there were all kinds of signs that were happening and healings that were happening. And Stephen began to be blessed, began to be falsely accused of blasphemy by a group of Judaizers. So we have this early deacon or server named Stephen who was performing acts by the Spirit of God, and he was falsely ac accused of blasphemy. Well, you know the story. Um, in Acts chapter 7, um, Stephen was arrested and hauled off before the council of the Judaizers. And in Acts chapter 7, if you read this on your own, he gives a brilliant summary of the entire history of Israel, of how it started with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then Moses and the giving of the law and they're in Egypt. Now God you know, took them out of Egypt and ultimately he leads to this holy person, uh, called Jesus. 
And then right in the midst of his summary of the history of Israel, all of a sudden he turns on the crowd that he's addressing, and he says this. And every time I read it, I go, don't say that. Because what he said is, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and of ear. Now remember, these were the Judaizers that had to keep the law to be saved and had to be circumcised physically to be saved. And all of a sudden, Stephen, filled with the Spirit, he says, you unstiff-necked, you uncircumcised in heart and ear, you always resist the Holy Spirit, even as all of your fathers did. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they even killed uh, uh, those who foreknew the coming of the just one, um, of whom you now have become his betrayers and murderers. You who receive the law through the direction of angels have not kept any of it. Now, obviously, this didn't put Stephen in good standing with the Judaizers. So they picked up stones, they cast him out of the city, and in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Now, here's where it's going. The witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, who were the witnesses? The witnesses were those people who were actually picking up rocks and throwing them. The reason they took off their outer garments and laid them at the feet of another Judaizer who was named Saul was so that their garments wouldn't be soiled by the blood when it splattered from the body of Stephen. That's pretty graphic. So Saul then is standing there um, in verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. By all of these robes laying at his feet, he was one of them, and he was going, get him, guys. He's saying blasphemous things against God. He's saying all these terrible things, kill him. He had blood on his hands. And Saul was consenting to the murder of Stephen. A few verses later, chapter 8, verse 3, Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen, and then it says... For as for Saul, he began to make havoc of the churches, dragging off women and men and had them committed to prison. Now, how would you like to be in a small group? You're just loving Jesus, you're studying the Word, and you're enjoying the fellowship, and all of a sudden this self-righteous, hate-filled Judaizer named Saul kicks in the door. They didn't need due process. He kicks in the door, and he discovers that you, this group of people, are worshiping this Jesus, and he begins to haul you out and chain you and drag you to Jerusalem to stand trial for being a believer in Jesus. Verse, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, one more scripture. Saul, still breathing threats and murder... You hear the words there? Now, why was Paul using the words dogs, evil workers, and mutilators of the flesh? It took one to know one. You see, Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the Lord's disciples, and he even had letters, it says, from the high priest to enter in houses 
and synagogues in the whole region of Damascus and to drag men and women off bound in chains to Jerusalem. Joy, how about if somebody came up to you and grabbed you and drug you out of your house, put you in chains, and began to lead you in chains to Jerusalem to stand trial for believing in Jesus? That's what was happening here. That was the context of the early church where the new church in Philippi, Paul says, look out for the dogs, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilators of the flesh who think they're righteous by having the physical right of circumcision, but their hearts have not been changed. See, that's the issue that Paul is warning this church, beware of what is false, all forms of self-righteousness. Well... You know, sometimes we say, well, I'm not, I'm not all that bad. Beware of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness like pride. Self-righteousness in our own lives like arrogance. Dragging off brothers and sisters and committing them to the prisons of unforgiveness and bitterness. You see, if we're not careful, we can do the very same thing that Paul was doing. Because our self-righteousness is simply saying, I'm better than somebody else. In another church, I had an elder. It was post 9-11, and I get it. But he didn't care for Muslims. And he actually used a word to describe all Muslims, and the word was raghead. Now, it was sort of tongue-in-cheek, but I listened to this for a long time. There's ragheads. It's, it's, it's a racial-slash-religious slur. Uh, and I confronted him on it, and he was, to his credit, he said, you know what, you're right. Uh, Jesus said, you've heard it said in times of old, thou shalt not murder. But he who's angry with his brother has already committed murder in his heart. You see, Jesus was always going to the heart, and that's what Paul's going at here. And he understood that the self-righteousness of the Judaizers, the Pharisees, those who were keeping the law and being um, um, circumcised in the flesh, their hearts weren't being changed. And if there's anything that Paul would say to us and Jesus has said to us is that he's always after your heart. That's why self-righteousness is such a repugnant thing to Jesus. That's why it's such a repugnant thing to Paul, because he was self-righteous. He was a murdering, filled with self-hatred Judaizer who was guilty of the blood of murder and raised havoc with the early church. Now, what is the anecdote for radical self-righteousness? Well, if you read on in chapter 9, you know what the anecdote for self-righteousness is. The risen king Jesus blasted a light around Paul and knocked him to the ground. And for three days he couldn't see, but he groped around and had to have people lead him. And meanwhile, God spoke to another person, Ananias, and said, you're going to go pray for Saul. Because I'm going to show you what, how God's going to use, how I'm going to use him. He said, oh, I'm not praying for Paul, this Saul. I know what a murdering guy he is. I'm not going there. And he said, oh, yes, you are. Because I'll show him how I'm going to use him in days to come. 
What's the anecdote for self-righteousness? Well, in Paul's case, is being knocked off your horse, blinded for three days, and coming face-to-face with the risen King Jesus. If there's anything that will transform my self-righteousness, it's coming face-to-face with the risen King. You and I will live in our flesh and call it okay until we have a self a face-to-face encounter that transforms our heart and doesn't just circumcise our, our flesh, but circumcises our heart. That's what Jesus is after in your life. That's what he's after in my life. And I'll share a little bit more personally in just a few minutes about that. The anecdote is coming face-to-face with Jesus. Nobody is beyond the touch of Jesus. Isn't that the good news? Paul could take this self-righteous, filled with hatred, Judaizers that had blood on his hands, raising havoc in the church, hauling people out to Jerusalem in chains, and could forgive a guy like that. How dare you say God can't forgive me of my sin? (laughs) He can not only forgive you of all of your sin, he can break the power of your flesh and your sin to set you and me free from it. That's what Paul's after in this text. Nobody is beyond the touch of Jesus. In his presence, all self-assurance, all personal accomplishments, all self-righteousness melt away. That's why he said, oh, if you want to see confidence in the flesh, I can show you. Circumcised the eighth day, born of the Hebrews of the Hebrews, yibbity, yibbity, yabby, yabby, this is who I was, and this is what I performed. And you know what it means? Zero. What matters is I've thrust it all aside and counted Jesus only as the most important thing. Here's the deal. Bottom line of beware of the, what is false, all forms of self-righteousness. It's total surrender to Jesus transforms the vilest of offender into a genuine disciple of Jesus, no longer having your own self-righteousness, but that which is credited to your account solely through the finished work of Jesus. Is that good or what? (laughs) Come on. That's the finished work of Jesus. That's what the church is built upon, not upon keeping the rules, keeping the rights, and being religious. Everybody said, But the church in America is filled with men and women who are calling their flesh okay. Well, that's just the way I am. Well, maybe not. It's the way you are until Jesus circumcises your heart and transforms you by the power of his spirit. Beware of what is false. Secondly, Hold on to what is true. Now, what is true? It's the circumcision of the heart. It's the transformed heart. Philippians 3 puts it this way. For we are the true circumcision. You see, Paul's contrasting false circumcision, being religious, uh, keeping all the rules, keeping the law, and being circumcised in the flesh. Is somehow that's what makes the Judaizers okay. And Paul says, no, no, no. That's not, they're not okay. I was one. What makes a person okay is when God begins to circumcise and transform the heart. Coming to church means zero to Jesus. Let me soften that just a little bit. (laughs) 
if you're here thinking that by your coming to church you're okay, that doesn't make you okay. What makes you okay is when you're found solely in the person of Jesus, without a prayer of your own. I deserve death because of who I am and who I was. But God, by his grace, imparted to me his righteousness. I have none of my own. That's why Paul could forget those things that were behind. Philippians 3.3 says, For we are the true circumcision. And then he gives sort of three hallmarks of that. Who worship God by the Spirit. Who glory only in Christ. The opposite of glorying only in Christ is glorying in yourself. Or glorying in your accomplishments. Circumcised the eighth day. Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. No. Having no confidence in the flesh. See, false circumcision, false external practices and physical rites mean nothing. Only true circumcision matters. And that is circumcision of the heart. What matters is a heart that has been changed and a, a new orientation to life has been imparted to you. Now, what does that? How does this happen, this circumcision of heart? Well, let me read a couple of texts. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, uh, Paul now, some years later, after God changed his name from Saul of Tarsus, the murdering, breathing out, hatred, Judaizer, to Paul, the apostle, uh, he says, for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What means something, what matters is the new creation. And what he's saying here, it, it isn't a physical right whether you have it, circumcision, or you don't have it, you're, you're not circumcised. What matters is, are you a new creation? Has God circumcised your heart? Have you been regenerated by the power of the Spirit? God is not looking for religious people. God is looking for people who have had their hearts broken for their sin and have found their cause only and solely in the person of Jesus. Circumcision means nothing. Uncircumcision means nothing. What really matters is a new creation, a new person. Are you a new person in Jesus? Have you been given a new nature? By Jesus. You see, the word for new here is kind of interesting. In fact, there's two words for new in the New Testament. And the first one is neos. And the word in Galatians 6.15 is not, um, is actually not neos, a new creation, new creation. Neos means just to clean up the old. It's like an old pair of shoes that you polish, and they look new. It has to do with new in terms of time. Uh, like, um, I'm, well, Jesus used the illustration of you clean the outside of the cup, but inside, not so much. <laughs> you see, we can clean up the outside of the cup. We can dress up. We can polish our shoes, and we can learn the language. We can act more Christianly, if you will, but that doesn't make you the real thing. What makes you the real thing is has God circumcised your heart? 
Has he changed you at the root, the radical of who you are? He does that by the working of his spirit. You see, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything but a new creation. The word he's using there for new creation is kainos, not neos. Neos means you polish the outside. Kainos means you're totally new. You're completely different. You have a radically different um, nature. The word kainos is also used in Galatians, uh, is the one used in Galatians 6.15, totally new and totally different. And it's also the word kainos, which is used in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Most of you can probably quote it. If anyone is in Christ, they are a kainos creation, a new creation, new nature, not polished, not cleaned up, not learning the Christianese, but actually a new creation by the act of, of God's working in your heart and in your life. I'll give you one more text here, and that is Philippians 3.3. Paul says again, we are the true circumcision, those who have had our nature changed, a new heart given, a new person. And here's how you can begin to know that we're the new creation, a new, uh, the true circumcision. We worship God by the Spirit. We glory only in Christ. We have no confidence in the flesh. Worship is more than just singing a couple of songs. It's engaging the heart. We're the true circumcision because we worship God by... That doesn't mean you always have goosebumps when you worship. But it means that when you come to worship, you're doing it as an act of praise and an act of worship because that's who you are, even though you may not feel like it day to day. You come and you offer yourself by the Spirit to worship God, and you no longer glory in any of your own flesh, any of your accomplishments, any of who you were, who you are, who you hope to be. But you're only glorying in Jesus, and you have no confidence in your flesh. So, the first thing, beware of what is false. The second point that Paul underscores is hold on to what is true, and that is the transformed heart that begins to demonstrate the nature of a new person is being demonstrated. And then number three, trust only in Christ, not in yourself or not in your flesh. I, read, I put down a couple of scriptures here. Let me um, read those. What things were gained to me, Paul says, these things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. Verse 8. And if suffered, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. All of my good stuff is just rubbish in light of Jesus. And verse 9, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which comes through trying to keep the law or my own performance, but that which comes through Christ. Now Saul, the old Paul, Saul of Tarsus, had trusted legalistic observations of the law. His personal attainments and his personal pedigree was important to him until he met Jesus on that road going to Damascus 
with letters from the high priest to persecute the church and breathe out havoc and murder and to haul people off in chains to Jerusalem. Jesus began to transform his life. He saw was self-righteous in his own performance until he recognized that Jesus offered him his own righteousness, setting him free from all the rules, setting him free from all of the rights, and setting him free from the Pharisaic and the Judaizing religion that he was involved in. But you know, trust in Christ is an everyday occurrence. And I want to share personally, if I may, I'm going to take a drink first. I've never shared this in an open context. I've shared it with some men or men's meeting. But about 15 years ago, now I've been a pastor for 40 years. You know, I've had it all together. No, I'm just like you, you know. But serving, I had a radical transformation in San Juan, Puerto Rico, out of the drug culture, through my dope in the ocean, absolutely flat on 100% for Jesus. Sold it all. Everything's down the tube. I'm going to live for Jesus. About 15 years ago, um, I began a subtle slide into trusting my flesh. Now, the point I'm emphasizing here is trust only in Christ, not in yourself or not in your flesh. You all have one. We all have a flesh. And it pulls against the Spirit, and the Spirit of Jesus in you pulls against the flesh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. About 15 years ago, I began to subtly um, uh, lean on my own understanding, trusting in myself, in my own flesh. Um, and I was, I won't go into the background, but I was in a lot of personal pain. Well, many people, when they get in personal pain, begin to cover their pain. Maybe you've heard that. They do it through alcohol. Sometimes you cover your pain through uh, buying more than you should uh, buy. Sometimes it's overeating. Sometimes it's oversexing. Some, it's just you cover your pain because you have this pain. It's your flesh, and you don't know what to do with it. And I likened it to holding basketballs underwater. Can you see that illustration? You know, we all have it, and, and see, I'm a pastor, and I got this flesh that's going on, and I was covering my pain uh, through inappropriate ways, and lo and behold, the way that my pain was being covered is that this young lady came my way. The enemy always knows your chink in the armor. Well, I began a romantic relationship with this woman who was not my wife. Let me say that it was not a physical relationship, not that it couldn't or wouldn't have gone that way, um, but it, it had not. Um, now see, it would be easy to say, well, that's just the way I am. Right, men? Maybe ladies? That's just the way I am. No, that's not the way you are. That's the way you are if you want to be that way and not trust your flesh to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, that relationship cost me dearly, cost me a lot of pain. Um, it was not a physical, adulterous relationship. But do you remember Jesus said, um, 
What did Jesus say? Talking about looking at a person in order to lust after them, you've already created or had uh, adultery with her in your heart. You see, you don't get to sidestep this thing and say, well, just the way I am, yeah, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, it's okay. No, I was in an adulterous relationship, and see, it's all about the heart. And that relationship obviously ended, had to end, needed to end. God graciously broke my holding down and trying to manage my flesh out of the water, and they just exploded. And a year later, after a year of psychological counseling, trying to figure out Humpty Dumpty and what happened, (laughs) um, and after a simultaneous year of marital counseling with my wife, and after trying to, attempting by God's grace to clean up the pain in my own life, the pain in my wife's life, the pain in our marriage, the pain in our family, the pain in, in the church, it goes on and on. God began to show me something, and that is, and my, and my wife isn't here today. She's flying back from Columbus, but she would say the same thing. We believe it's the grace of God that he allowed this to happen in our life because otherwise we people will simply try to manage our flesh rather than take it to the cross and let Jesus put it to death. Now, I suspect statistically that some of us are here this morning that are doing that. Not because I know, but statistics would suggest that probably 10 to 20% of the people in any given room where there's 100 people, you're going to have people who are trusting in their flesh day to day. Now, it might not be the kind of flesh that manifests itself through an inappropriate relationship. It might be the kind of flesh pattern that just is sometimes ugly toward other people. It might be the kind of flesh that just is basically angry. You've seen them. We see them, and we try to tiptoe around them and go, okay, bad day, no bad life. You see, it might be the kind of flesh that just has to overcompensate through lots of performance, but flesh is still flesh. And the Scripture says if you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you will reap a harvest called death or corruption. So Jesus And in this case, Paul is talking about the necessity of not managing the flesh, but let him crucify the flesh so that you can be freed from it. Trusting in Christ and not in yourself or not in your flesh. You see, Cynthia and I have come through this painful experience. By the grace of God, we're still together, and our marriage is probably better than it ever has been. But don't presume for a minute that it wasn't really hard and really painful, really for her, really for me, really for my family. You see, you can run from your flesh, but you can't hide from it. God sees it, and God is out to explode your beach balls or your basketballs out of the water. Why? He doesn't want you to live that way. He wants you to be freed from your sin and the power of your sin broken uh, in your life. Have you ever read the scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 that says, Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Who is that? Everybody put your hand up in the air. That's me. That's you. Let him or her who thinks they stand be careful because you're that far from falling. 
That's every one of our conditions because that is the nature of the flesh. Trusting Christ is a daily experience. Um, I've heard people try to excuse their flesh by saying, well, that's just the way I am. No, that's not the way you are. Uh, You are the way you are because that's the way you want to be. You see, God will deliver you from your enemies, but he won't deliver you from your friends. If you call something in your life your friend, God will not deliver you from it. But if you call it what it is, your enemy, he will deliver you from that thing and set you free from it. Whether it's drugs, whether it's lust, whether it's overcompensation through performance, whether it's making more money, it doesn't matter. The amassing physical and fiscal things, um, all of that, uh, you can't hold on to the flesh. You've got to let Jesus crucify it. Okay, one final point, and this is probably um, the end one. Third one, don't trust in Christ. Don't trust in your own flesh. The fourth one is relationship with Jesus is everything. It was everything for Paul. And Paul says, I want to know him. Now, the American church is good about, I, I want to know Jesus. I know Jesus. Paul didn't say, I want to know Jesus or I want to know about Jesus. He said, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Now, what do you mean by that? And what did he mean by the, 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 his suffering? And what did he mean by being conformed to his death? He meant you get the whole enchilada. When you get Jesus, you get it all. You get Jesus and you get the power of his resurrection. Where does the power of the resurrection intersect with your physical life? That is your flesh. Well, I'm just an angry person. Give it up. It's called repenting. It's called take it to the cross and saying, God, I can't do anything about being an angry person. Guess what? That is the reason we have Jesus. Jesus died for the anger. So I'm just, I got this, I don't know, I just got this kind of lust thing going on. Well, guess what? You get to take that to Jesus too. You get to go, God, I don't know how to change this thing. I can't change this thing. I've done everything I can do. Well, guess what? Jesus can change it. He can take it to the cross and on the cross, kill it. Doesn't mean it won't raise its head again, but every time it does, you take it back. Why? Because trusting Jesus is a daily thing. Paul says, I want to know him because I'm a transformed person and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his very death. Jesus offers us the power of his resurrection today. He offers to us the transformation of our heart Today, that's why the scripture says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Holy Spirit is speaking. We don't have to fall and wiggle and flap on the ground like fish. That's great. But what God is doing, he speaks to his people. And if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They were circumcised physically, but their hearts weren't circumcised. How about you today? Maybe there's an area of your life. You go, well, I've, I've, I've kind of sort of heard God speaking about this. You don't kind of sort of hear God speaking. When he speaks, you're either hardening your heart against it or you're cooperating with him and allowing the, the power of the resurrection to intersect your life and transform it. You see, that's the gospel. And that's what we're about here. 
a church that's intelligent in the word, a, a church that understands the power of the spirit, the, the church that wants to get on with letting God do in us and through us what we can't do for ourselves. If you think you can do something in your own strength, you probably will. And to that extent, you're probably trusting yourself and your flesh rather than Jesus. Paul said, here it is, bottom line, I just want to know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And I want to even be conformed to his death.